Um, so what happened with the screen was we took it down and we fixed it. Lou and I were able to get up there, mostly Lou, and get it down and push it against the wall like it goes for this short throw projector, really cool short throw projector back there. And then we noticed that when we, um, when we had it down that it was actually a painted drop cloth. And so uh, when it came down, it crumpled and wrinkled, but it's painted. And so no, the answer is no, you cannot iron it. But we didn't try. Thank God we didn't try. Um, and so what probably needs to happen is that we repaint it. And I think that might take the wrinkles out of it. But you're stuck with them today. Um, but meanwhile, we have a new plan. We are, if things go the way I'd like them to go, we will be having two screens on the corners where you can look from this way or this way and have our arch back. And um, I think that would look a lot better. And that may happen. I can't promise anything, but Joel told me for sure. <laughs> that it would be possible that that be there next Sunday. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'm going to try. I promise to try. And if it doesn't happen, then I don't know what to tell you. But let's see what we get. Today we're talking about giving to the ministry of the gospel. And with the dark color, it's not so bad. You can't, it's not such a mess up there. Um, this is our study on biblical stewardship. We're in the 13th get-together on this topic. And this is the first time we're really specifically talking about money. Because the biblical doctrine, I've told you a gazillion times, or at least 12 other times, the biblical doctrine of stewardship is not about money primarily. Giving to God is not necessarily about money. And giving to God is a constant response to who God is. And that's really the way to think about it. And so I want to show you that today. We've talked about a lot of things. Last time we reviewed quite a bit about reciprocation with God in John 17 and how that works in terms of your life. And let me just summarize what I understand stewardship to mean. When God has delegated something to you, that's stewardship. He, he's the one that owns it. He gives it to you, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's his and he's sharing it with you. That's how it works. That's why we're such capitalists. We love the idea of the protection of private property, not just because the Ten Commandments say don't steal or don't covet, although they do. We love private property because we believe in the Creator. He made everything. It's His. He puts it where He wants it. We honor that. That's a delegation, a distribution, a stewardship God has given. Well, they do a bad thing with it. That's between them and God. That's the idea. If you're godless, as the Marxists and the socialists are, then you, you can... You can just dispense with that sacred bond between God and the person in that delegation. You understand what we're saying? This is a biblical, really important central concept in Scripture to what, you, what it is to be human. See, everything you have, you got from God. Take a breath. Your lungs, God did that. The fact that your Krebs cycle so that you get oxygen to your tissues, that's all God. He did that. Everything you have, these are my lungs. He gave them to you. It's a delegation. And when you start thinking about, well, he gave me this for me to make decisions about so that I'm in charge of what happens to that thing, whatever you're in authority over, that's the concept of stewardship. And, and so really, the difference between a biblical view of stewardship and, and what everyone else tends to think is whether or not there's a God. It really is. Atheism is going to say, it doesn't matter to anybody what you do. You do what you do for you. That's an atheistic or materialistic frame of mind. I, you know, greatest good is me satisfying my desire and being pleased with, with what I get from my efforts. And that's where people live after the flesh without a reference to God. But if you, if you do what, 
Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, you, you go beyond the sun to the one who made it, beyond the S-U-N, the big orange ball. And you go beyond that to the creator of the sun. You're no longer living under the sun. You're beyond the sun, living in the, in the light of God's presence. Then you've got to deal with everything you have is his that he's given you. It's a delegation. You have a responsibility to make decisions about it. And that's biblical stewardship. So what, what does that include? That includes your life, your body, your health. That's God's stuff that you're doing what you do for his sake if you understand your role as his creature designed to worship him with your choices. Uh, uh, well, what, and so if, you're, if you don't think this way, if this is a new thought for you, you may start to sort of panic, start to get a little bit agitated and start trying to find a closet to put some things in that you could just have for you. And that's, that's the tendency of your flesh and the, the, the lie behind it is Satan's lie that God in Genesis 3-5 is holding back the goodies, that God doesn't have better for you in mind than you have for yourself. And that's, that's that closet. You're trying to throw stuff in there. That, that's my space. God can have the rest of it, but I get this little closet. And what I'm after today is the closet. Whatever you're hiding that you think is yours re- without respect to God, including your time, the, the time you spend to entertain yourself, that's God's time that he's delegated to you, what are you doing with it? Think about it. And did I say you shouldn't entertain your... I I didn't say there shouldn't be entertainment. I said you should do it in light of the God who's given you that time. What about about rest? Should I just be working constantly? Not if you're a biblical person. You should be resting. It's it's one of the great gifts, one of the great blessings of life. You know, if you aggregate, if if you work fast through the Chronicles of Narnia, as an illustration, one of the things that C.S. Lewis keeps bringing up, and it's written for children, the Chronicles of Narnia, theology written allegorically for children. One of the things he keeps mentioning in there is the description of sleep. And it's funny because I was that little kid that never wanted to sleep. And once I fell asleep, I never wanted to get up. There was nap time in in kindergarten when I was a kid. I always got the the little ticket that got you a gumdrop if you if you were asleep, I was never asleep. I was always playing possum. That's what we called it. I was always pretending to be asleep. And that ticket was always there. You know, I heard her put it down there. And uh, she probably saw my eyes moving under my eyelids. I was just pretending. I was playing the game. I hate going to sleep. But when you read C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, he's always talking. And I think in every book, at least five of them, he describes the blessing and benefit of sleep. Oh, f- refreshing calm sleep and and it's the way he presents it i think he's trying to tell kids that there's something there for them it's a blessing god's given you and that's part of stewardship you've got to take care of the body you got to take care of this physical plant and that requires rest and see if it's just a completely different way of thinking about life to be a christian that everything i have is god's because i'm god's because jesus bought me with his blood and if i've been bought then i'm owned that's awesome. It's the best news ever. And these are, these are chains of love you cannot break because it's the blood of Christ that has secured you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, so this is kind of the summary on stewardship. And today we're talking about how that relates to spiritual Christian giving, the ministry of giving. When I prayed earlier, I said, we're going we're gonna to pray and we're going to worship by prayer. We're going to worship in song, worship in the ministry of the word. But we also worship God in giving. And it's, it's money. And that is an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people. 
a lot of us pride ourselves on our dinky boxes in the back, the little, the little grace boxes, because that means that this church doesn't pass a plate. Can someone tell me the significance of the fact that the church doesn't pass an offering plate in, in the worship service? Can anyone tell me why that's uh, a desirable thing? And I know I agree with you, but why? Why is it a good thing that we don't pass the offering plate and instead you just have to go line up in the back if you want to give? What's that? So, so one of the things is that people are watching the plate. So they see your hand and they see you put your hand in the plate and then they look and if your hand comes out and there's nothing under it where your hand was, you're trying to pretend like you're giving but you're not. And somebody's watching you. People are watching you. You're worried about that. <gasps> That's not a thing at all. Now, it's been pointed out to me on more than one occasion that people could still see you going to the back and putting something in the box. So this is the first thing I want to say about giving. That really, you, this, is, this is not even part of my message, but... Um, Maybe this should be the message. It doesn't matter what people see. And you shouldn't be looking at what the other person's doing. Left and right hand doesn't, they shouldn't be communicating. You give to God. If you give, and I mean if, if you give, you're giving to God. And if you are giving so that other people are seeing you giving, so that they are honoring you in their hearts because they see the great gift that you've given. If you're blowing the trumpet as the Pharisees are in the gospels, so that people will hear that you gave and they, and they honor you for it, then you've wasted the opportunity to worship and you've glorified yourself and you have no reward. You have no benefit. You would be better off to save it and keep it for yourself than try to spend it on your own glory. I hope you're, 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 you understand. Don't look at the, if we were to pass a plate, if we were, I'm not saying that we are, I have an argument for why it's a good thing to do. And I'm not proposing that we do it. I, stick with me here. But if we were, if you were in a church that passed the plate, don't look at what someone else gives. That's not the point. Do you know why they pass the plate in the church? In the Catholic church. See, no, it's not because they're Catholic. The reason people in worship services that are not being legalistic or trying to look at what each other are giving, the reason they pass the plate is because it becomes a part of our corporate worship that we're doing together. You have that sense that just like when we pray and when we sing and when we have the word together, we're also sharing and giving to God as something we do together. This is something our church doesn't really have a sense of. Did you ever think of that? And some of you will be like, nope, nope, it's, it's just trying to get my money and I get the sensitivity, believe me. I was, uh, one, one of our number went down to, to Mississippi. I don't think Joe would mind Joe Cusick was here for a number of years and really got serious with the word here with us. It was a magnificent time. And then the, the, the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard uh, took him down to Mississippi, and he hadn't been into a lot of different churches, raised Catholic, and this was his first kind of Bible teaching, um, you know, post-Reformation church kind of thing. And um, he was amazed. He said, I cannot believe how Preston City Bible Church operates compared to what I'm seeing in every one of these off-the-corner Baptist churches on every street. Because they're passing the plate three times before the first song. They got to pass the plate for the missions. They got to pass the plate for the women's flower auxiliary. They got to pass the plate for the sheet music. They got to pass. And, and it's, it's like we're here just to give money. 
And people have been so abused by the TV preachers. Touch the screen. Are you feeling it? $1,500, just write the check right now. Write it off of your credit card. People have been so abused by shysters and thieves that we've lost the sense of the glory of worship of God and giving. First principle, it doesn't matter what anyone else sees. In fact, they better, it'd be better not to know. I have no idea, for example, who gives what in this church by design. There's like three layers of, of, of defense. Now, somebody knows because they count and they account and we, we report and we are very diligent. We, we audit the, the, the offerings and the intake and the output. We audit everything every year. We're very above board and known. And, and anybody can look at our books. It's amazing uh, how diligent this church is to me. From, compared to what I've heard of preachers uh, taking whatever cash is in the box and then uh, it kind of disappears, it doesn't get counted, which is very common in small churches. But anyway, Joe told me that they're passing the plate because this thing is just a racket to get your money. And that was super sensitive to him. And he had been in church here for five years, had never had that happen. Nobody ever asked him for a dime. And that's the way it should be. If we were to pass a play, understand if you don't have money to give and you don't want to give that way, you should feel wonderful to just take that plate and pass it on. Do you know why? Because we don't know what you're doing. We know in that moment of that part of giving, you would be not giving that way. But there are lots of ways we give. And so I just think it's very important to talk about this in a way that gets rid of a lot of our emotional baggage we have with it. I grew up in a church that passed the plate. And I don't remember any pressure pastor get up and say, this is giving, this is not tithing, there's no tax. It's, a, it's giving. And then he prayed for the offering and then they had some sort of musical uh, offertory that was while they were passing out. I thought it was a really neat part of the, of the worship service. But I also like how we're known. People, people say, hey, they don't even... These people are so not after your money here at Preston City Bible Church, they won't even pass a plate. I kind of like that too. I hope you understand. All right, that's my introduction. Let's get to the message. Giving in the ministry of the gospel uh, operates on the principle of Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. The third day of every month, of course, I know you have assiduously read Proverbs 3 because there's 31 chapters in Proverbs and there's 31 or 30 days in a month. And so every third day of the month, you could read Proverbs 3. Isn't that fun? 150 Psalms, that's five a day in a 30-day month. So you could read five Psalms, one Proverb, and that would be a month of wisdom and praise. But anyway, in Proverbs 3, 9, it says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce... So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Because of the abuse of the gospel on the TV especially and the charismatic tendency to to tell people to give beyond their means and some sort of faith uh, idiocy. Because of that, we shy away from what's actually being said here from the clear statement of cause and effect. Cause and effect, cause and effect. Verse nine is the cause. Verse 10 is the effect. That's a deal between you and God. I believe it. I've seen it. And I think this is true. Honor the Lord from your wealth. 
from the first of all your produce. Wealth could also mean property. It doesn't mean, well, I'm not wealthy. I just have a little. I don't have any extra. It's not talking about extra when it says wealth. Let me show you why. This is the, this is the Hebrew, okay? And uh, without getting into any detail about it, which I never do when I'm showing you the, my translation, he says, honor Yahweh from your chon, uh, from your wealth. This word wealth is also used to mean property, from what you possess. Now, how does that relate to our introduction about delegation? All the property belongs to the creator. He has delegated it to whom he's delegated. It is his initiation that has resulted in you having anything you have. So based on that, verse 9 is a reciprocation back to him. He's already given. Oh, Lord, I don't have anything. I don't have anything to give. So give me something and then I can give it. That's the idea. It's reciprocation. We'll, we'll look at that again in a moment. Honor Yahweh, that's the Lord, that's the creator God who is self-existing, the one who is, and nobody makes it so. Honor him from your wealth and from the first, the reshith, bereshith, Elohim. In the beginning, God created the, the beginning, the first of your produce. The principle is, not do I take my budget, the, the budgeting, I take my budget and I think about all the things that I have to do. And at the end of my budget, if there's anything left over, I'll see what portion of that I'll give to God. That's not what, the, that's not what it's saying. It's saying the first. You budget him first. That's, that's the wisdom. Am I requiring this of you? Are we giving you pressure and leadership? No, I'm just saying this is the biblical principle. From the first of your produce. And think about, these people are farmers, they're agrarian, okay? They have several days of harvest, okay? But the first, they're going to give to God, the first part of the income, of the receipt. Now, that is the cause, but it's also an effect. You can do this in verse 9 because God has already given. There's already harvest, there's already wealth. You're giving back, it's always giving back. God started this. When the engine started to kick over, the, the initiation of, the, of this reciprocation was God gave, you have. Well, I worked hard for my money. With what hands? With what brain? With what abilities? In what frame? In what environment? Thank God for your job. Oh, I don't want to thank God for my job. I hate my job. Start loving God with how you do your job. It'll make your life a lot better. But this is the idea. Honor God with, from your wealth and, and from the first of all your produce and then he says, and they will be filled. What will be? Your stores. The Bible, my Bible translates this word barns, but it means the place of storage. And that's what a barn is. But it's not specific to barns. Your stores with shavah, with shavah, with plenty, and with new wine, sweet wine, that's um, fresh and just beginning the process of fermentation. With new wine, your uh, vats will overflow. The verb overflow going with the vats. This, this word is more commonly, parats is more commonly about bursting, breaking open. So the wine skin bursts or the vat is so filled that it blows open. you like, you can't hold all that God is going to pour is the picture. And it's a really consistent thought in the Bible and the Proverbs, the one who, who, gives, who waters will be watered abundantly. 
the idea and what's been said, and it's a really good summary. It's like love the sinner, but hate the sin. That's a really good theological summary. You can't outgive God. You're giving back to him if you ever give him anything. It's already something you have from him to give back. And this is what I mean by reciprocation. Reciprocation. What in the world does that mean? Pastor, it's Sunday morning. We're supposed to hear something about Jesus' love. We're supposed to be talking about being good people. And they're there and it's going to be okay. And can't you give one of the three typical messages that would basically amount to we came, we saw, we left, it was okay. No, we need to learn. You need to learn something. The word is reciprocation. R-E-C-I-P-R-O-C-A-T-I-O-N, reciprocation. And this means that it's not linear. Think the model. We think that I got my work and I did my work and I got my money. And now I'm going to go over here and I'm going to give to God. I'm going to honor God with my wealth and give to him. That's what giving is always is to God. I'm going to give my, of my wealth to him. And so I got it over here and worked and then God, I give it over here. But that's not what the Bible's saying. God handed it to you and you got it in the way that you got it. And then what you did is you went over and you gave it to him. And it's a loop. And that's the way the Bible presents this. Jesus spoke these things in John 17, 1, lifting up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son can glorify you. He's asking, you know, my illustration of this is playing pitch with your dad. Throw me the ball so I can throw it back. If you, I can't play unless you throw me the ball. He throws you the ball, and then you what? You sit on it? No, you throw it back. That's the picture. God the Father, God the Son, you give me glory, he asks, so that I can bring you glory. That's verse 1 of John 17. Even as you gave him, you the Father gave him the Son, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Do you see the reciprocation? You gave me disciples... And I'm giving them eternal life, so I'm giving them the knowledge of you. I'm revealing you to them. I'm, you handed them to me, and I'm handing them back. And see, verse 3 is the only verse people know of John 17 because it resonates. This is a definition of eternal life, to know God. But what's he saying it for? He's saying it because you gave them to me, and I've given them eternal life, which is to know you. So it's reciprocal. God the Father, God the Son, you gave me authority over these people to do what with them? To give them eternal life. And that's the reciprocation in John 17, 3. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. Do you see how he's asking for reciprocation? I did this, you did this for me, I've done this for you. Keep doing it. Let's keep, and that's the way to ask. That's the way to ask, and this is the biblical doctrine of giving. This is the biblical doctrine of stewardship. This is how you relate to God. And so to me, when I hear it this way, spiritual giving is a joy. Spiritual giving is, is, a, is a wonder. And some of you know this, and others of you are completely baffled that I would say that. Give up something? I don't give up anything. My hands are welded shut, and and I'm not criticizing you. I'm saying I know we've got different hearers. But some of you will testify 
that giving to God is the greatest joy that you've ever experienced. Some people are spiritually gifted as givers. Think about that. Their spiritual gift is to give to the work of, of, the, of the ministry of the gospel to God. All right, well, let's tell a story. We've, we've, we've given some pretty awesome theology the Bible teaches. I think this is fantastic because how do I relate to God? Reciprocate with him. What has he given you? It's his. Give, give it. Give of it to him, right? Talent, skill, ability, relationships. Jesus is talking about personal relationships in John 17. So we've done some theology. Let's tell a story that's really a scary story. And flip a course as we're going to talk about giving to the ministry of the gospel to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Want to look there with me? This is a story about money and the mission of the gospel. A man named Ananias. Does somebody want to read verse 1 and verse 2? Someone help me with verse 1 and verse 2. First hour is a little less formal. We'll do a little prayer meeting time. Anybody want to help me with this? Oh, Mark, you, yeah, go ahead. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, context. This is the text. Now, the context is that the church is just getting rolling, getting started in Jerusalem, where, it's, where it began on the day of Pentecost. As the Jewish people are receiving Christ, they're being booted from the culture. They're, they're getting the sword principle Jesus taught is happening. They're getting excised out of the synagogues. They're getting, they're getting disenfranchised from their business contacts. They're uh, under stress. And we're going to hear in Acts 6 about the uh, Hellenistic widows. There's a heavy need for charity, for money that is given in love to God for the needs, for the physical needs of the people in Jerusalem. And this is going to be one of Paul's missions. Paul's going to go on mission. And one of his key things he does is he takes up this money, this love offering to God for the support of the poor saints in Jerusalem who are under oppression because the culture is rejecting them. And their whole lives are turned upside down. And you can just imagine if all of a sudden, for Christ's sake, if you claimed Christ, you were rejected from work. What would you do? You would come pray about it. Prayer meeting would be awesome here. Okay? So, so what's happening is they're taking up offerings if people want to give. They are, this is a the model. These people had a piece of property, Ananias and Sapphira, and they sold it. And then they laid the money at the apostles' feet. But there's a problem. They didn't give all the money. Now that's starting to look. Now look at it. That's starting to look like the, the Bible's saying that you have to give all the money to any purchase that you make. You have to give it all to God. Especially as the story ends. Both these people are dead in, in seven more verses. Dead. God deads them. But this is, the, this is an interesting thing. It's back to who you tell and what you tell and who knows and all that. They are publicly laying this for everyone to see at the apostles' feet as though the purchase price of the land that they sold is all going to the gospel. We had it and we gave it. And they're proud of themselves and they're promoting themselves by the giving. But it's not true because they kept back some for themselves. Now, is there anything wrong with selling a piece of property 
taking part of it and giving it to the ministry of the gospel for God, to God, in this case, by giving it to the apostles, giving it to God, is there anything wrong with taking part of that to your own needs? We got a car we need to fix. I want to start investing. I want to save some back and, and, uh, and build a, an investment. I've got plans. You know, the investment people will say, have a plan for what your money's supposed to do and, you know, give it a job. And, and so focus on that job for that money. You could do what you want. The problem is the purported gift was all that we had from the proceeds. They lied. And watch this. The problem is the lie as you follow. Mark, help me out with verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The problem is the lie. Before you sold it, it's yours to do with what you want. After you sold it, it you do what you want. Why did you lie? Now, what they did was they presented it before all, all the congregation at the apostles' feet, right? They said, this is the giving that we've got. There's an offering that's being taken up, apparently, and they brought theirs. Here it is. But the communication that they thought was for people is actually toward God. That's what I'm saying. When you give, you're giving to God. The only person that matters is actually three persons in one being, it just matters what God thinks about your giving. It doesn't matter what I think or what anyone thinks, except God. This is a relationship with God thing. I can't reciprocate like God can. You know how we, we do reciprocate. Someone does something and you say thank you, and then you do something and they say thank you. That, that's a relationship. But this is a relationship with God issue, and it's very clear here. Mark Sinded, what's verse 5 say? As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. So uh, Peter didn't like have a stick and point it at Ananias, and he didn't say anything about the consequence, but Ananias died. Now what we call this here, beloved, is the sin unto death. These are believers who have lied to the Holy Spirit here at the very outset, the very beginning of the work of the gospel in the body of Christ. And watch the beginnings. Watch the, the, the initial setup conditions when God starts a work in, in, in the Bible. Heavy consequences. When Moses is right there getting Israel started, all he does, all he does is he hits the rock when God said, speak to the rock. But before God said, hit the rock. And so he hit the rock and water came out. Later on, he's angry at him. Shall I bring forth water from the stone? And he strikes the rock when God said, speak to the rock. And messed up God's illustration. The rock only gets struck once, right? The rock is our Savior, and he only took the hit for our sins once. So Moses messed up the illustration. He didn't know what he was doing. He's just angry. When you're angry, you don't know what you're doing anyway. And anger makes us stupid. And so he does a stupid thing. It's a rash thing. Everybody's done something stupid and rash when they're angry. But Moses is in front of the children of Israel the representative of mediator between God and man, and he is setting up the nation to worship God in the land. And because he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it and breaks the illustration, I think, because he does that, God says, that's it. You've served me all this time, and you don't get to go into the land that you're leading the children of Israel to. What? Why so harsh? 
And, and Moses goes back after God about this like a, like a six-year-old at Halloween. Give me my candy, give me my candy, give me my candy. No, right? God finally says to Moses, you don't get to ask me anymore. Stop asking me if you can go into the land. I said no, you're going to die without going into the land. It's harsh. Watch the setup conditions. When God is setting up a work, he has heavy, heavy consequences. I think there's a lot of lying to the Holy Spirit going on today. <laughs> but, but in this apostolic era, as we're getting things going, uh, this is a moment of great awe and fear of God because of the, the commission given the apostles. So the young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. That's Ananias. So now we have to go to contestant number two in the story, right? We've got two people, and the first verse said they agreed together on this little sham there. So verse seven. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. So the wife comes, and she's un, they don't have phones. They haven't texted each other. She's like, where are you? Where are you? She's just doing her thing and expects to see her husband when they normally meet later. He's dead. She doesn't know. Peter responds to her. What do you say, Mark? Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. <clears throat> Peter, couldn't you have said... Your husband just died by telling a lie to the Holy Spirit about the land that he sold for such and such a price. You didn't sell it for X dollars. You sold it for Y dollars, right? Peter could have done it that way. But instead, he let this be the demonstration. And this is something Jesus said, that the apostles would have the keys. And what they bind on earth would be bound in heaven. And, and actually what had been bound in heaven, would, they would bind on earth. And so this is, this is God honoring these apostles, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit, who is the, the offended party. So yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, Where are we? verse 9, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Of course, the reason I would tell this story at this portion of the message is to bring you to great fear and awe so that you would give, you know, the whole price of the land, not at all. What I want you to see is that ministry of giving, the ministry of giving has been something that is central to the work of the body of Christ since its very beginning. And it is a relationship thing between you and God and when you lie to God in front of other people, the church, the church gets involved. The, the elders are, are now administering somehow. And it's a huge mess. And I just want you to see, Peter said, it's yours. You do with what you want, but you can't lie to the Holy Spirit. Tell the truth. Tell the truth in your heart to God about where you are with him. And do as Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians 8, do what your heart directs. Do what your heart, uh, you have, I should say, what you have in your heart, you do what makes you a cheerful giver. So if you'll turn, please, to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I want to exposit a little bit this passage because it's the key passage on giving in the church. I'm supposed to just do a poem and a song at this point in the sermon, but 
Let's do two chapters of Paul's letter to the second Corinthians. <laughs> Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. As one state official recently said, two Corinthians. All right. All right. Paul writes to the Corinthians because they're part of the mission of the gospel. And one aspect of the mission of the gospel, is, as we said, is the support for the body of Christ in need. And the people in need in the greatest extremis are in Jerusalem. The poor saints in Jerusalem, they need support. And so this is part of Paul's mission. He's taking up support money for that work. So that's the context for you to understand how he's discussing this with the Corinthians. Now, brethren... We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches in Macedonia. They're, they're in Achaia, which is a neighboring province to Macedonia. And so culturally very similar. Macedonians might say, no, not at all. But to us, yeah, they're cousins. And the churches in Macedonia would be Philippi and Thessalonica. And they're very successful as you read Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians. God has done a marvelous work of grace in their giving is the topic. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. He's bearing witness to what God did in the hearts and then in the hands of the people in Macedonia in their giving. For I test... Now, wait a second. Didn't we give to God? Isn't it just between God... Yes, and Paul's not talking about individuals. He's talking about, look what those believers did. This is a cause for their rejoicing. God is doing something through these people. And remember the principle in Proverbs 3, verse, uh, verse eight, uh, 9 and 10, that, that second part, you gave liberally, and God is going to overflow your wine vats is the idea. They overflowed at their wealth of their liberality, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. See, that's really important. There is no percentage that anybody in the, in the body of Christ has a right to tell you that you budget to give to God. They gave of their own accord, and they didn't give because they had excess. They gave out of their poverty, which overflowed in the wealth of liberality, Paul says. Paul is very uh, beautifully verbose sometimes begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Verse 4 is the attitude that you want to give with. When you give, it's a privilege and you're looking for let us help, please. That's the attitude. If you're not there, that's a between you and God conversation. But that's the attitude with which we give as Paul will develop. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So I sent Titus down to tell you about the need and to stimulate if you have interest in giving to this work of the support of the poor saints in Jerusalem. But just as you abound in everything, see these people are rich, richer than the Macedonians. The Corinthians have, are, are a wealthy church. You abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and the love we inspired in you. See that you abound in this gracious work also. They're spiritually wealthy. They think they are. And that's a, a running commentary Paul has on them that you've got all these people speaking the language's gift. 
you have, you're speaking foreign languages in praise of God, but you're not doing it correctly in chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. But they abound in these gifts and in love that Paul has taught them and therefore inspired in them. But he says, see also that you abound in this gracious work. He's saying it's the heart, but it's also the hands. It's the attitude, this desire, this love that you have, but then it issues forth in action. And that's the challenge that he's offering them. I'm not speaking this as a command. See, we don't lord it over those allotted to our charge. Paul's a good shepherd here in 1 Peter 5. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also. Do you see how the church is functioning? Do you get in line with the church is sort of the appeal. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that through, that though this is such a wonderful verse, though verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's a reciprocation. And so, what, so he already did that. What are you going to do is kind of the attitude, kind of the presentation. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. You weren't just doing it, you want to do it. It's heart issuing forth in hands. This is the, the consistent appeal, is that you want this. And by the way, in this context, as Paul writes this letter, he's received a pledge that they made to Titus. Paul knows what they said they would do. They made a commitment to give to the saints. And they said how much they would give as a group. That's right. In the first century, as the church is getting started, they're committing, this is how much I'll give. And then that gets totaled up. And then that's the pledge. That's what's happened here as you read it. But now finish doing it also so that just as there was the readiness to desire it with Titus, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. See, I'm coming after I write this letter, I'm coming to you, and now's the time to fulfill your pledge. Because by the way, I told the, masses, I told the people in Jerusalem. So this is the, the, the you got to understand the historical setting. Paul, has, Paul has, is telling them, be ready for what you said you would do. Because others are now expecting because you said you would do it. For this is not for the ease of others and for, your, or, and for your affliction, but by way of equality. We're not trying to make you be poor so that the people in Jerusalem become rich. You have, and they don't, and you can help them, and it's our family. It's family support. As is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack in Exodus 16, talking about the manna. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We've sent along with him. See, Titus carried this letter, and he's standing there, and they're reading the letter Paul sent through Titus. So we sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Not only this, but he has also appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. I have a witness of what we're doing with the money. That's what he's talking about. We're taking up this money. You've committed such and such dollars. When you give such and such dollars, that's what's going to show up in Jerusalem because I ha we, we're all uh, transparent. That's what, he, that's what he's talking about. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with, the, with them our brother, whom we've often tested and found diligent in many things. 
but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the, of the churches uh, to the glory of Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches now, show, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. You said you would do this. And so here they, this letter comes with these guys that are ready to receive what you've, what you've committed to. For it is superfluous. I love the New American Standard. It is superfluous. It's more than I need to say for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness in which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia, that's the Corinthians, have been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. You said you would do something and now I've told people and now they need to praise God in the actual that you've done it. It's <laughs> what he's saying to the carnal <laughs> Corinthians. Do you see it? Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Don't Corinthian on me, guys, is what he's saying. <laughs> because it's going to be a shame instead of a reason to praise God. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly, listen to the principle. We've said it here so many times um, in our reminder that part of worship is giving. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. That's what, that's what he's talking about. It's the same idea. It's throughout the whole Bible on the question of giving. You cannot outgive God. We cannot outgive God. And he's reciprocating with us. And it's a faith challenge for us. But let's do it. Let's, be, let's trust him. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If there was one verse on giving money to God, that would be it for me. That's the one. There's no compulsion here. You said you would do it. I've told them you would do it because we're, we're rejoicing. We're communicating. Paul's always writing letters. Boy, it better happen because that's going to be a shame, he said. Paul's so clear. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed as it is written. He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. It is not linear. Giving is never linear. Not to God. Not if you're giving it to God. It's a short linear trip if you lie to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. It's, you did the thing and then you died. But in the body of Christ, giving as worship to God is something that God back supplies so you can do more. And I think the principle is that you and I have been designed to be conduits, not reservoirs of blessing. We want to be a reservoir, but that's not the design. We're not the storage tank. We're the conduit. 
And if we think of it that way, you're going to get some flow. (laughs) I think that's the idea. Now, please, I know I'm taking a little bit of time, but this is a very controversial topic, and I want to be very, very, uh, I don't want to say clear, because the the current president administration, they always say they want to be clear. They want to be clear. All right, so just please understand, I'm not saying you give as an investment strategy so that God will give to you. That's never what it says. It says, because he's given to you, you give to him in faith, knowing that he'll backfill you. You give to him in faith, knowing that he will supply you. He will resupply you so that you can be abundant in your giving. But that's not the same as, well, uh, I'm trying to get more out of this, so I'm going to give so God will give me. That's, that's not the game. But you can't play ball unless you throw the ball. You've got the ball, and now you're holding it. You're like my dog, what we had before. You have a dog that would get, get the ball and then didn't know how to give it back. Run around all over the yard. I got the ball. I got the ball. You're miserable. I'll go inside. You're going to be, you drop the ball immediately. You don't even know what the ball's for. And that's what we do. But you bring it back and then he throws it again. And that's, that's reciprocation. So please don't think of it as I'm going to give in order to receive. Think of it that I have received so that I have the privilege to give and God's got me. And that's the attitude. That's the vision. That's the heart of Christian giving. It's from the mouth of the Apostle Paul, beginning with the the book of Proverbs. I hope you understand. Uh, And there is zero pressure or expectation from the leadership or anybody that's in line with leadership here. There's no 10% 10 that we we require. There's just, you need to decide how the first fruits that you want to give to God, how that works. And that's between you and the Lord. Our Father in heaven, as we consider giving, as we consider the Christian ministry of giving and stewarding what you've entrusted to us, I pray that you would remind us of your grace and that it is every time we give to you, it's a response. It's a response to what you've already done, but it's a response in faith to what you've also said, that you'll fill us up. Father, let us enjoy being conduits of your blessing. Pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.